How do you make somebody famous, really famous? Stick them on TV, on the news, make programs about it, interviewed by, by somebody famous, Oprah. You'd stick them on Netflix. You wouldn't be able to turn on your phone without an image of them popping up somewhere. But how would you do it if none of those things existed? How would you make somebody famous if, if none of those things were available to you? You'd gossip about them. somebody famous how would you do it now I don't mean um, voice famous or America's got talent or anything like that famous because actually nobody can really remember who won the voice three seasons ago or who won American Idol four seasons ago. Nobody knows. So it's not real lasting sticking fame. What I'm talking about is how do you make somebody famous? Really famous. Now, if if we had to do it now, we'd probably say um, stick them on TV, on the news, um, make programs about them, get them interviewed by, by somebody famous, like Oprah or something like that, or um, you get him on all the TV chat shows, the late night shows, and Letterman, if he was still doing what he does, and, and Letterman show on Netflix. You'd stick him on Netflix. Uh, you'd have him on the front cover of magazines. You, you'd do all that stuff. You'd probably hire a PR firm or a set of promoters to flood social media with them. You wouldn't be able to turn on your phone without an image of them popping up somewhere. That is what we would do to make somebody famous. But how would you do it if none of those things existed? Now, it's hard to imagine a world where you couldn't just pick up a handheld device and, and text or phone somebody. It's hard to imagine a world for a lot of people without the internet, although that's the world that I grew up in for most of my life. Uh, no internet. And, and so, how, how would you make somebody famous if, if none of those things were available to you? Well, okay, um, you, you maybe say, well we'll, well, well, we'll write it, write about it. We'll, 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 we'll spread the word by, by, by writing about their fame. But what if most people were illiterate? What if only a small percentage of people could actually read, and an even smaller percentage of people could actually write. What would we do then? How would you make somebody famous? You'd gossip about them. Right? Everywhere you went, you'd tell stories about them. You'd, you'd, you'd put them together really, really cleverly, and you'd, and you'd 
You'd go from place to place and you'd tell stories over and over and over again. You'd be told and retold and retold and retold all the time. So this, this continuous stream of gossip. 2,000 odd years ago, that's what started to happen. That's what started to happen with the people that hung around with Jesus. There was no internet, there was no TV, there was no phones, there was no photography, nobody painted a picture of them, and nobody drew a quick sketch. There was nobody in the courtroom during Jesus' trial and making a quick sketch of, of all that, and nobody did that. But they sat around and they gossiped and they talked. But then nature kicked in. And the people who had actually been hanging around with Jesus, who were telling these stories, started to die. Some of them were killed. Some of them, just the normal uh, run of nature, they started to die. And, and people looked around and thought, well, what now what are we going to do? We better write these down. We better write these stories down. And so they did. And we have fragments, fragments of those Copies of the, none of the originals actually exist, but we have fragments. We have fragments, little copies of them, uh, like this, tiny fragments of, of the manuscripts. And, and they're tiny, thousands and thousands of them, hundreds of thousands, actually, of these. And they stick them together in, in, in giant, incredibly important jigsaws, like this. Part of the book of Matthew on papyrus written in a hand. And you can actually still read the Greek writing that's on here. It's fascinating. But then how did we get from this all the way to this? I mean, <laughs> how, how do you get from that to this? Well, you collect hundreds of thousands of these and you piece them together until it starts to make sense. And you can tell by the word structure and different fragments that are com more complete than others and they, and they piece them together. And, and that's what they did because they wanted to tell the most incredible story that has ever been told. Now, the problem with that is this, is when you flip open this thing, huge and um and you flip open to the new testament and you have these four gospels matthew mark luke john well why does the new testament start with four gospels it seems weird because the the four gospels were not the first books written of the new testament they weren't probably thessalonians or Galatians, or maybe Philemon, little tiny book. Philemon, Hebrews, James, little tiny book, one chapter of a letter. Those were probably the first ones written. So why then, after all this gossip has gone on, why do we have the four Gospels start in the New Testament? I'll tell you. Because the whole of the rest of the New Testament looks back to the events that are told <laughs> in the book of Matthew. 
This here actually is a section that that uh, that tells about the lineage of Jesus. That's that's what it actually says. And if you look at it here, it, it actually says Rahab, Rahab. It's, it's written right there. The name of Rahab the hooker from Jericho is in the lineage of Jesus, and it's right there. That's her name. Isn't that incredible? And so they put all this stuff together because it was so important because all of the events that happened after in the New Testament look back to the life of this incredible character who became very famous. I mean, how? How? Ask yourself the question, how? Does an itinerant Galilean rabbi with no backing from any formal authorities from his own nation, who, by the way, is executed by the occupying Roman army for sedition and betrayed by his own people and abandoned by his own followers. How did you take all of that and in under 300 years, he becomes the most famous figure on the earth? And not just like three seasons later in American Idol, but 2000 years later is still the most controversial figure that has ever walked the face of this earth. And this, is still a best-selling book in the world. More copies sold than anything else, continuously. How did they manage that? Well, these guys started to tell this incredible story. First man to write it down is a man called Mark. Right there, Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament. They probably put it second. Nobody really knows. It's the earliest one written of the four Gospels, but they probably put it second because it's so short. 16 chapters. It's nowhere near as long as Matthew, but when you look at the book of Matthew, 92% of what Mark writes down ends up in the book of Matthew. So Matthew uses this as a source and Matthew keeps the same order. So 92% of what Mark writes down ends up in Matthew. 53% of what Mark writes down ends up in the book of Luke. That's a third of his book. It's over half of Matthew. It's taken from Mark in the same order. <laughs> That's an amazing thought. So actually, people often come to me and say, Phil, how would, you, how would you recommend I read the Bible? I would recommend you read the New Testament a little bit like this. Mark first, then Matthew, then Luke, then Acts. Then the book of John to get an overview of them all. So Mark, Matthew, Luke, Acts, and John. That's how, that's how I'd read them because it's a great way to read them. Now Mark, this incredible writing it it's it's so rough and ready as he writes and maybe that's another reason why they put it second maybe they didn't think it sounded intellectual enough mark starts a flying start he doesn't listen mark chapter one verse one this is what it says 
This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom, straight out of the gate. He nails it down exactly what he wants us to hear. This is the beginning of the gospel, the story, the good news about Jesus, the Christ, not just any Jesus, because Jesus was quite a common name. When I was in Spain, uh, I, I saw Jesus, uh, the plumber. Couldn't have been the same one because it was on the same side of the van. And this one was a carpenter, carpenter's apprentice. So they distinguish this Jesus from all the other Jesuses by saying, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ interchangeable terms, the Christ and the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. That's who he is, the son of God. You see, Mark, he doesn't start with the Christmas story. He starts with what he believes is the most important facts. Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the son of God. And he puts it straight out there. He's not hiding anything. He's not pretending to be an unbiased witness. He is telling everybody exactly what he thinks. And then he goes on and he says these things. So straight out of the gate, the first thing written in the first gospel, and as Mark is writing this, he's actually inventing the genre of gospel because it never been really written like this before. Straight away, the first thing he says in the first gospel written, this is the beginning of the story, the good news about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Now Jesus turns up here, about 14 verses later. I think it would be interesting to see what's the first things Jesus says. Have a look at this. Verse 14, chapter 1 of Mark. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. That's a little town, hour and a half from, hour and a half, two hours from Jerusalem. Little area. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. See, it's that word again, good news, which is gospel, good news. Proclaiming the good news of God. This is what he says. This is, this is what he says. Now listen to this. It's just great stuff. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Change the way you're living and believe the good news. Now he doesn't say change the way you're living, but he uses a word that means that. Repent, turn around. Do a 180, go a different direction. Change the way you're living and believe. First gospel, first words. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God, says who he is. Now, why is that important? Because this was written in a time and a culture where the son of God was the emperor. It was actually written on the back of their coins. The son of God. So when, when Mark writes this, He's coming right, right smacking into the cultural emperor worship. The, 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 the view that the emperor is the living embodiment of God, of a, of a God. 
And so, so the, the, the emperor worship thing was a massive thing in, at this time. And Mark is coming right out and saying, hmm, you might think this, but boom, this is the real one over here. Watch what he does. And so he starts to tell this story. First things he does, the emperor. And in those days, they were famous. The empire was famous for its religion, the religious, its piety. Right. Because they, they couldn't compete with the Greeks for philosophy. They couldn't compete with the other people for their artistry. They couldn't compete with those. But they but they were the greatest of, of the nations for having the most gods, for being very pious in, the, in their worship of multiple gods and having an emperor who they called a god. So Mark nails this down. First thing, the first thing that Jesus says is the kingdom of God is near. Change the way you live in. Repent and believe the good news. Hmm. Well, why would I care? Like, really, really, why would I care? This is 2,000 years ago, like I said. Uh, now, he may be famous, but like, why would I care? He's clearly out of touch with, with the society that I live in. He's clearly out of touch with the needs of the 21st century human beings. He's true, clearly out of touch with, with, with secular Canada and, and the rest of the world that has moved on so much further than, than donkeys and camels and, and, and chariots and stuff like that. I mean, we can fly around on, we can fly around on drones that are big enough to lift a human being. How is this possibly relevant? Well, let me say this. The culture that this was written to, they were in the middle of an absolute moral crisis. They knew it. You see, they, they, they'd suspended moral law. They, they'd said that there was no absolute Truth. There was no absolute right or wrong. So you couldn't judge anything on the basis of morality because whatever you thought had equal authority with what these people thought. So everybody's morals were, were up in the air and you could grab whichever one, you could cherry pick whichever one you liked. Let me tell you a problem with that, what happens. This might sound familiar. If you suspend moral law, then there is absolutely no mathematical or, or, or postmodern formula by which you can prove that torture is wrong. We know, we know, we know that it's morally wrong. But if you suspend moral law and say there's absolutely no wrong and no, no right, that there's no absolute truth, then I cannot prove that torture is morally wrong. I can't prove that abusing children is wrong. I can't approve, approve that, that atrocities are, are, are wrong, are morally wrong. And that is exactly where this group of people found themselves floundering in the moral fog. Because nobody had the guts to stand up and say this is morally wrong. The poor... And the wealthy live side by side in this culture. <laughs> the, the middle class was getting smaller and, and the, the poor and the rich and, and the middle class was just this smaller group in between. Sound familiar? 
their culture was obsessed with sex. <laughs> Preoccupied with sex. And they were spiritually, had no fixed point of reference. Everybody chose their own spirituality. And into that is what they gossiped this good news. Jesus comes along and says, into the middle of that culture, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. It's right here. Now, at hand. Have, ha, at hand. It's at hand. It's not far away. I can't get, unless I cut it off and throw it in the garden, I can't get very far away from this. He's saying it's within reach. The kingdom of God is within reach. Now, change the way you're living and believe the good news. He didn't invite them to the temple to tell them that. You notice that? He didn't, doesn't do it. In fact, you read this. Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee when he says this. That's what he's doing. He's walking along the beach at the lake. And he says, the kingdom of God is near. Change the way you live in and accept the good news and, and live by it. He goes to the fisherman's office. And he says this, he interrupts the normalness of their day. He interrupts the normality of it. He dares to walk into their place of employment, their place of work, right into their neighborhood and say, the kingdom of God is here. That's what he dares to do. To speak into the moral vacuum of their culture and say the kingdom of God is here. Change the way you live and believe the good news. And when he said it, the people who heard that had a choice. <laughs> and so do I. So do you. I, we, us, all have a choice what we do with this challenge. The kingdom of God is near. Are you living in a moral fog? Are you living in a world that's desperately trying to find a spiritual hook to hang their spirituality on, but it just, just won't stick? It's like trying to nail jello to a wall. You can't do it. confused by all the stuff that we see in social media. Looking at our kids and our grandkids and saying, I want a better world for these kids than this mess that we call normal. And in the middle of that, 2,000 years after he first said it, we hear these words. The time has come. Draw a line in the sand. Like, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Change the way you live. Believe the good news. The great thing about that is, he doesn't just say that and then walk away. He asks them to follow him. And then he gives them the power of the Holy Spirit 
to actually be able to change the way that they live. That's a great deal. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. You know what? The message hasn't changed since then. It really hasn't. It's the same message. The same truth. The kingdom of God is near. The hooker got it. She got it. And she made her choice. I got it. I made my choice. Kingdom of heaven is here. Change the way you live and believe the good news. My prayer today is that every single person that hears this will wrestle with the way that our society is and, and know that we cannot change it without somebody else's help. God help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Be safe. Generosity comes in many forms. Our time, our help, our kindness, and our resources. But here's what we know the Bible teaches us. When God's blessing comes to us, it must also go through us. So, what would it look like for you this year to be generous? A timely gift? A helping hand? An act of kindness? Prosperity isn't meant to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Abundance isn't meant for us to live in luxury, but for us to help others live. And generosity isn't just something God wants from us, but something God wants for us. When Jesus came to save the world, he didn't ask, what can I spare? Instead, he asked, what will it take? So, what would it look like for you this year to be generous?
Thank you.